It's Thursday, April 25th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Twitter has become a public square where anyone can share ideas, discuss, debate, or even troll others. We often see media reports point to activity on Twitter as a representative example of how the country feels on any given subject. But how do Twitter users compare to the U.S. population? My producer Miranda joins us to discuss new findings from the Pew Research Center. Bottom line, Twitter is not America. Next, as more media companies are gearing up to launch their own streaming platforms, Netflix might have to think about life without some of its top shows. For example, the top Netflix show by minutes watched is The Office. But discussions are already happening at NBC Universal to pull the show and bring it to their streaming service. Joe Flint, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us to discuss what could be a recurring headache for Netflix and its subscribers. Finally, some international additions are coming to a McDonald's near you. Starting in June, McDonald's will be introducing new menu items from other countries. You can try the Grand McExtreme Bacon Burger from Spain or the Stroop Waffle McFlurry from the Netherlands. Kate Taylor, reporter for Business Insider, joins us for the new additions. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Looking at the data, we analyzed tweets sent by all members of the House and Senate and found no statistically significant difference between the number of times a tweet by a Democrat is viewed versus a Republican, even after all of our ranking and filtering of tweets has been applied. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. We're going to be talking about Twitter and some new research that the Pew Research Center did about the platform and the people who use it. You know, a lot of times you hear something like, oh, it's blowing up on Twitter or everybody's talking about what so-and-so said on Twitter. And a lot of times the media will actually drive the news cycle based off of what they read and experienced on Twitter. But compared with the U.S. public overall, what voices are really represented on Twitter? The research suggests that Twitter is not America at all. It's not representative of the U.S. population as a whole. Chief among it is the top 10% of tweeters account for 80% of all the tweets and the bottom 90% are the rest of it, the other 20% of tweets that are coming out there. So tell us a little bit more about this, Miranda. Well, first off, Twitter users in the United States are statistically younger, wealthier, and more politically liberal than the general population. They're also substantially better educated. According to the Pew Research, 42% of the sampled users had a college degree versus 31% for U.S. adults broadly. 41% reported an income of more than $75,000 too. That's another large difference from just the country as a whole. And they were far more likely, and that's 60%, to be Democrats or lean Democratic than to be Republicans or lean Republican. Yeah, we hear a lot of stories about conservatives not really getting as much play on social media, mm -hmm. on Twitter specifically. The president had a meeting with the Twitter CEO, Jack Dorsey, to talk about some of this stuff. And some of this research suggests maybe that's what it is. It's not that there's a purge of conservative voices or anything like that. It's these social media platforms become echo chambers. And if the majority of people there are Democrats or lean Democrats, that's what you're going to get out of that right there. Tell us how these top 10% of tweeters are using Twitter. How much are they posting? They tweet a median of 138 times a month and 81% use Twitter more than once a day. These people are most likely to be women. 
65% versus 48%. And they were more likely to tweet about politics. Yeah, these heavy users tend to have about 400 followers and they tend to follow about 450 accounts. Compare that with the rest of Twitter, the bottom 90%, which only account for 20% of the tweets. They say that their median tweets per month, only two. <laughs> and they say that they, they have about 20 people who follow them and they follow about 75 people. So that suggests that the kind of casual user people that aren't these top users, it's really just their small social circles, maybe. Well, that's why these findings reinforce the idea that, you know, social media isn't the most accurate barometer to take a pulse on society and what people are actually caring about. And that actually really gets lost because people online get angry and then it's the echo chamber and they want to hear what they already agree with. And that's why it sounds like some stories get way more play than they should. And you get confused about why that's the big story of the day. It's the place where stories go viral. It's right. the place where somebody can say something very incendiary, funny, post a funny video or something. And then the media will catch it. These top 10% of users will catch it and blow it up from there. They have more power in the bigger media sphere than the social media actually does. And earlier this week, there was a big meeting between the president and the Twitter CEO, Jack Dorsey. It was to be a conversation about the health of the public conversation. Reports were that it lasted about 30 minutes and that the president spent a lot of time talking about why a lot of his Twitter followers had been purged. The president stated that he believes he lost some of his roughly, you know, 60 million followers in this anti-Trump, anti-conservative Twitter purge. But Jack Dorsey really was insistent to the president. And he explained that like other Twitter users, his account has a massive following of bots and fake accounts. And Twitter is doing their due diligence to delete all those. Right, exactly. Anybody who has a lot of followers tends to get them inflated. And then when Twitter gets around to actually identifying those and deleting those, the numbers go down. So that was uh, Jack Dorsey's job to let the president know uh, about that. So just be careful what you see on social media, as the uh, old saying says now. Thanks, Miranda. <laughs> Thanks, Oscar. Would I rather be feared or loved? Um, easy, both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. And I think I proved that today at the dojo. Joining us now is Joe Flint, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. We're going to be talking about Netflix and just kind of the ever-changing landscape on TV and with all of these streaming platforms that are here now and coming soon. Right now, Netflix is going to be in for some recurring headaches with a lot of their favorites, a lot of their most viewed programming on their platform. In particular, their number one show, The Office, might soon be leaving. It's a possibility. NBC Universal is going to be starting their own streaming platform. And there's already discussions about pulling that so that they can play it on their own thing. So tell us about this, Joe, how, how the streaming landscape is going to be changing soon. As you mentioned, a lot of big media companies, Disney, Warner Media, and NBC Universal are looking to launch their own streaming services. They want to establish their own direct-to-consumer relationship. And to do that, they will create original programming, but what will also be very important to them, certainly when they're starting out, 
out is to have a strong library of classic TV shows. For years, the Hollywood studios have sold reruns to Netflix. It's been a very profitable business. Netflix sells out a lot of money for shows like Friends and The Office and Grey's Anatomy. And those shows have been key to Netflix's success. And now, as these guys, Warner, Disney, others, start to launch their own streaming services, they're going to start to pull those shows back from Netflix because they'll want them on their own service. And it could be a pretty big worry. You know, Netflix does continue to tout its all its original content, but 72% of the viewing minutes on the service are all spent on this library programming, all of these uh, TV reruns and old movies and things. Yes, Netflix has certainly benefited greatly from the library product they've brought in. And and the other thing, too, I, I don't want to downplay Netflix originals. They make a ton of original shows. A lot of them do well for them. They've won awards with them. They have a lot of good original content there. But it is the acquired shows that bring people in to sample those other shows a lot of the time. I mean, the way Netflix was built is really no different than the way the cable television industry was built. Before FX was doing big original shows like Sons of Anarchy and Nip Tuck and The Shield and other shows that they have on now, they were spending lots of money on big reruns. They were buying NYPD Blue and The X-Files, and those shows would bring people into the channel. And then from there, they could put on new original shows. They'd have a promotional platform for them. So, you know, the Netflix formula is not exactly new. It's been very successful for them. And now they face the challenge that a lot of these shows will go away or could eventually go away. Not all at once. You're not going to turn on Netflix tomorrow and find all the acquired classic shows gone. (laughs) This will be a long, drawn-out process. But it is something that will happen, and they've been preparing for it. Even they would tell you this is why we've been spending so much on original programming bringing people to the platform their original shows often bring new subscribers when the original shows come out there's a spike in viewership particularly with stranger things over a 12-month span people watched it for 27.6 billion minutes but their number one show that's been like a workhorse you know just a stable for them the office had 45.8 billion minutes that were being viewed. These things are their staples where people want to catch these reruns. Why do people want to watch so many reruns? I think the phrase that gets used a lot in the industry is comfort food. Someone in our story from Nielsen compared it to you open up your clothing drawer and you see a bunch of shirts or new fancy shirts and yet you somehow always grab that old sweatshirt. And I think that's part of it. There's a familiarity factor. And and the other thing too, a lot of times when, when you go to Netflix or, or Amazon Prime or or Hulu, especially with Netflix, you can be inundated, overwhelmed right. by the amount of choice you have. That's me every and- day. <laughs> right. And so there might be 30 things that say, oh, that might look good. That might look good. That might look good. Oh, but there's there's the office. There's friends. I, you know, I, I got to kill half an hour. I'll, I'll, I'll just watch the office. I'm not going to take a chance on trying this new show. So I, I do think that is another factor. It's just becomes the, the comfortable choice. The other thing that I think happens a lot is everybody has multiple screens now, your phone, your laptop, tablets, whatever. So sometimes you just put something on in the background, even though you're doing something else and you want it to be that comfort food. You know, you want it to be the office because, you know, you can really not pay attention and then tune in for a quick laugh and go back to what you were doing before. So there's a lot of things that play with that. Talk about the money that goes behind some of this, because 
we heard about Friends and how Netflix paid $100 million to keep reruns of them throughout the rest of this year. They paid the same $100 million to keep uh, episodes of The Office until 2021. So talk about how much money is being paid into this. It's a lot of money. I, I want to clarify in The Office, that $100 million, that's a deal that they have had for quite a while. So the folks at The Office actually feel like Netflix really got a sweetheart of a deal there compared to the popularity of the show. Yeah. And even Friends, it's a new deal that may may fluctuate if, if Netflix ends up sharing the show with Warner Media down the road. But that was a new deal. Originally, it was a much lower cost and probably beneficial to Netflix. But it is significant money uh, that Netflix will be spending to try to keep shows. The flip side is, though, that the studios and the, who are launching their own streaming services, they need to keep their profit participants happy as well. So it's not as simple as Warner Brothers says, we're moving friends off Netflix and we're putting it on our streaming service. They have to keep the creators of that show whole. Netflix pays a certain amount of money and a certain percentage of that money goes to the profit participants. And these new streaming platforms are going to start running into some of the same problems eventually because they all share a lot of this library programming. So if you're going to shift completely into exclusives and all the companies are going to be doing some shifting. Well, exactly. And then what does that really mean for us poor consumers? I mean, we're already having to subscribe to, or in my case, cable and Netflix and Hulu and maybe even become overwhelmed of having to, you know, <laughs> subscribe to multiple right. streaming services and a big and a big cable bundle as well. Yeah, the rise of cord cutting has just led to the rise of multiple streaming platforms that you have to pay for. In the long run, you probably pay the same amount as you were with cable. So, yeah, yeah it's, exactly. it's, it's very interesting to see how this is all playing out. And it's all going to happen, start happening very soon as these platforms start launching. Yeah. In the next few years, it'll be very interesting to see how the landscape shifts, both for these entertainment companies and the consumers and their entertainment options. Joe Flint, reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. They are going to hit menus in early June, according to the internal documents I've seen. McDonald's isn't commenting on if they are coming out, but they did say no comment to me in Dutch. So I'm <laughs> taking that as as close to confirmation as I can get. Joining us now is Kate Taylor, senior correspondent for Business Insider. I love stories like this. I am a foodie. I love everything about food. I love fast food. And I think McDonald's in particular, holds a special place in a lot of people's hearts just from growing up eating it. Whenever I see good McDonald's news, I always want to talk about it. And this uh, particular thing is very interesting to me. McDonald's is adding four worldwide favorites to their menu. Some leaked documents show that they're adding some things from Spain, the Grand McExtreme Burger, <laughs> Bacon Burger, the Dutch Stroop Waffle McFlurry, all, a couple of other things. Every time I've traveled, it's one of the first things I always try to do, identify McDonald's and then see what's that weird thing that they have on the menu there. In Italy, I had the McLobster Roll in Costa Rica. I had the McPinto, which is just the dish that has like rice in it. And I also had this cheesy egg sandwich that's like on the filet of fish bread. It was very delicious. Kate, tell us what's in store for McDonald's. They're bringing in four international options to the U.S. this summer, which some of them sound very good. From Spain, we have the Grand Mick Extreme Bacon Burger, which is honestly a great name yeah. um, <laughs> just to start out with. And that one has McBacon sauce, which not entirely sure what that's going to be yet. 
then also gouda cheese, slivered onions, and of course, bacon. And then some other ones, the Stroopwafel McFlurry sounds delicious. It People sounds are really, really excited about that one. Basically, it's your classic McFlurry. You got soft serve, but then some caramel waffle cookies and extra caramel sauce. So that is going to be a nice kind of tasty summer ice cream treat. And then there's two others that are a little bit more mainstream. We've got a tomato mozzarella chicken sandwich, which is served in Canada right now. So maybe not the most exotic thing. And then they're bringing back some cheesy bacon fries, which have been on the menu in Australia for a while. They had them on the menu in the U.S. earlier this year, and now they're bringing them back again. Yeah, the uh, cheesy bacon fries, uh, I did have those when they came out. They were okay. The Tomato mozzarella chicken sandwich does sound pretty tasty. It has a chicken breast with onions, lettuce, tomato, mozzarella, and a tomato herb sauce. So that sounds pretty tasty. I'm definitely going to try to get into all of these. So when are these coming out? They are going to hit menus in early June, according to the internal documents I've seen. McDonald's isn't commenting on if they are coming out, but they did say no comment to me in Dutch. So (laughs) I'm taking that as as close to confirmation as I can get. Right. And this is coming at the same time that they're going to be cutting back on other parts of the menu as well, the Signature Crafted Burgers that they launched two years ago. Yeah, Signature Crafted was a huge deal when they launched it. It was kind of seen as McDonald's trying to do fancier burgers, more upscale, and a little bit more expensive. So they're taking those off the menu this summer to kind of make room for other things. They've been experimenting with more fresh beef burgers, but then also these new international menu items. Yeah, it was a funny response that they actually had. They said that they're reducing that to reduce the number of products in restaurants, but yet they're adding these new items and, you know, they could just say, hey, maybe these new burgers weren't working out. They did have a more expensive price point than the regular burgers. So maybe that's why they weren't working out. But McDonald's is changing up a lot of stuff. The meat in their quarter pounders and other burgers They kind of upped the quality in those, even just in the regular ones before. And we talked about previously on the podcast how McDonald's acquired Dynamic Yield, this company that works with e-commerce and uh, other travel and finance and media to create. What they're going to try to do is tailor the drive-through menu for people when things like the weather change or current restaurant traffic, trending menu items, the drive-through is going to change as you're ordering. So it could suggest things for you. So I'm sure all of this is going to play a part into the next iteration of McDonald's, how they're changing with technology and, and, you know, trying to meet the customer's needs. Tech is such a big thing in the fast food industry right now, where being able to have a good mobile app where people can order using that or like McDonald's is doing, having this, you know, the tech startup to make drive through more customer friendly. It's super interesting where most people don't think of technology and fast food going hand in hand, but increasingly they are. Just wanted to ask you briefly, have you ever traveled abroad and had something uh, different at a McDonald's? I have not had anything super interesting, but I did go to Australia. And when I was there, I saw the most beautiful McDonald's I have ever seen. <laughs> it was just Truly lovely. Lots of very high quality things that are much more expensive than you would get at an American McDonald's. So I haven't done anything too crazy, but I was impressed by what Australia is serving up. Yeah, as I said at the beginning, it's kind of one of my favorite things to do is just try to see whatever the locals have there that we don't have. McDonald's was testing a lot of this stuff in South Florida. They had 50 locations where they were doing this last year that's where they tested the grand muck extreme <laughs> bacon burger but they also tasted some uh mcshaker fries that were from malaysia and this mcspicy chicken that was from hong kong so it's always fun to see these new exciting uh menu items and if they're successful there's a chance that mcdonald's could 
put other international hits on the menu down the road, which would be kind of an exciting way for them to use things that they've invested in in other countries, things that they've tested on, things that they know that customers like, even if they aren't going to join the permanent menu of American stores. Totally agree. Just give us a little taste of it. Kate Taylor, Senior Correspondent for Business Insider. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.